In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Get ready for a wild 2022 legislative session. Welcome to the Politically Georgia podcast for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and here today with political insider columnist Patricia Murphy to talk about what will be a chaotic and wild legislative session. Thanks, Patricia, for joining us. Good morning. Earlier this week, I sat down one-on-one with Governor Kemp to ask him directly what he wants to focus on when the legislature gathers in Atlanta on Monday. Near the top of his list, the governor told me he will back legislation to promote in-person student learning in response to decisions by some school districts to return to virtual classes. I'm not opposed to virtual solutions, but the kids need to be in the classroom. We have the tools to do that. We've had superintendents reach out to us, go and help us, help us do this, and that's what we're doing. Dr. Toomey and I are on the same page. As is present by. Look, Patricia, this is another example of how politicized this issue has become and how election year politics is going to really help shape everything that happens this legislative session because it's popular with the conservative base to say that you don't want to go back to virtual schooling. I know it's popular with many parents because my kids are back in virtual schooling uh, right now. Uh, But it's also a sign of the pressure that he's facing from David Perdue, the former U.S. senator, who's saying that he would assign an executive order to block schools from going back uh, to virtual learning, an executive order that would have been instantly questioned whether or not it was constitutionally legal. But yet he is still saying that. Yeah, I think there are two pieces at work here. One are definitely the politics. And you mentioned David Perdue really pushing Brian Kemp on this. I think that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is also pushing a number of Republican governors right now on this because DeSantis has made some moves that have been very popular with conservatives and with Donald Trump uh, to push to keep kids in school, to be pushing uh, schools not to have mask mandates in Florida. And so that's really setting a little bit of a blueprint for other Republican governors. So that's the politics of it for Kemp with a primary on the right. The policy piece of it, I think, is a little bit dicier because this is the same governor who vetoed a bill years ago when there was a statewide mandate for recess to extend school recess by 15 minutes. And Kemp vetoed that, saying that it is up to local school boards to make these kinds of decisions. And so imagine the magnitude of leaping from school recess extended for 15 minutes to go back to school during a pandemic. You must because I said so. So, and the state said so. Um, there are real constitutional questions about whether the state has that authority. I asked all of these questions last year when all of our kids were in virtual school and was told by multiple state lawmakers 
and some state officials that this is not possible to do legally, but we're going to see how far Governor Kemp can push this. Yeah, he might have found a workaround or there might be some sort of, you know, more tepid um, uh, uh, move that he makes that, you know, pushes schools to stay in person, um, but doesn't force them to. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't bite when I pressed him on that question in a number of ways. But there's another big issue um, where he also wouldn't bite. And that was the question of Buckhead cityhood. You know, we talked also this week to Speaker David Ralston, to Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, none of the three most powerful Republican lawmakers, none of the three most powerful Republicans in Georgia would back the cityhood movement, but but neither of the three ruled it out either. That's exactly right. For uh, Jeff Duncan and David Ralston, they both sounded quite skeptical on specifics of the Buckhead cityhood movement. Um, for David Ralston, he really talked about the kind of precedent this would set to have lawmakers. He didn't say what the president was, other than it would be to let lawmakers from outside of an area introduce a referendum for a city that they do not represent and that is actively opposed by that city. I've heard from lots of lawmakers in both parties worried about what that would do to them in the future if a delegation from outside of their city wanted to come in and put referenda on their next ballot election. And so I think that's a real concern for a lot of process-oriented lawmakers. Um, And then I think for Duncan, he said, I just haven't seen the proof that this is going to stop crime in Buckhead, which is the argument that Buckhead City uh, movers and shakers are pushing. Um, And these are the three most important men. These are the the people who can greenlight it or um, stop it in its tracks. So the fact that it's not getting an, an immediate let's go even during an election year, is really, really interesting and very important to watch. Yeah. And in, the, in terms of the precedent, it would not just to set up the precedent of letting people outside that city dictate whether or not that city can form or can split, but it would also be uh, one of the first times in modern Georgia history where in a city de-annexed a part of its property and then formed a new city. So you could all, you're already seeing sort of breakaway movements being talked about in other parts of Atlanta and other parts of the state. Let's, let's hear what Governor Kemp had to say when, when I asked him about this question. I've been in the same posture for months now on the issue. I haven't really taken a position on the legislation. We're continuing to talk to all the parties involved, but there's a reason the movement's out there. So Patricia, he's you know he's not exactly playing both sides, but he is leaving leaving that open for him. And you know, and that is, it's it makes political sense too because he can go to both sides of the issue all over Metro Atlanta, from the really powerful corporate leaders who who hate the idea of a Buckhead cityhood to the conservatives in Northern Atlanta and the rest of Metro Atlanta who like that idea and say, hey, I'm still on the fence. Yeah, and there is a reality here that this uh, situation is really dynamic in Atlanta and Buckhead right now because Atlanta has a brand new mayor in Andre Dickens who has had all of four days to get his arms wrapped around this situation. And so I think it is legitimate for these leaders also to say, well, let's just hold on for one second here while we assess the situation. Also, uh, I don't think Governor Kemp ever really likes to take a strong position on anything that wasn't originally his idea um, before he sees the details of the legislation. Yeah. You know, when, when it, when we started talking about whether or not Andre Dickens had the time, you know, he's, he's pleading for some patience for time to implement his plans. Governor Kim told me, Hey, I told him he doesn't have that much time and this might be the most important transition in Atlanta city hall history. So 
it'll be one of very many issues we're watching this session. And another huge one is election laws. You know, last year the the session was dominated by a rewrite of election restrictions and election rules that included more obstacles to voting at the ballot box. Um, this year, there's some talk from very powerful Republican leaders, including Butch Miller, who's a candidate for lieutenant governor, to ban ballot drop boxes. Other lawmakers are talking about revisiting um, some of the provisions from last year's legislation. I asked Governor Kemp about that. Well, look, we have the strongest elections integrity law in the country. It's also very accessible, by the way. So I'm looking forward to continuing to talk about that. Well, Patricia, he went on to basically say, no, he, he does not want to revisit that legislation. Um, he feels like it's a done deal, you know, which is not exactly a surprise, but also a clear indication that 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 there is a wing of the Republican Party in Georgia, which we've talked about and written about, that wants to look forward rather than look back at 2020 more. We heard David Ralston say yesterday, it's time to start looking through the windshield and not the rearview mirror on elections. He wants to start looking forward, does not want to talk about 2020. Jeff Duncan does not want to talk about 2020. But all of the Republican lawmakers running for statewide office next year do want to talk about 2020 if they're running in a GOP primary, because this is still the top issue for Donald Trump and his supporters. And Donald Trump has said, even though Brian Kemp has said that the Georgia election laws that were passed are the strongest in the country, uh, Donald Trump has said he doesn't think that's the case and that uh, Brian Kemp and Republicans didn't go nearly far enough to make sure that the next election is going to be um, not stolen in his uh, in his verbiage. This really feels like an issue that's coming back up because we have so many lawmakers running um, who are sitting in the uh, uh, General Assembly right now, but who are running for statewide office next year. And it feels like it's going to, the, the governor may not want to talk about it, but they're going to be talking about it. Absolutely. There is something that Governor Kemp would love to talk about with the Republican primary base, and that is anti-abortion legislation. In 2019, his first term, his first legislative session as governor, he he pushed through some of the strictest anti-abortion rules uh, in the nation. And we asked him whether or not he wants to revisit those because there's now some other states that have different provisions that have moved even further. We have passed, if not the most aggressive anti-abortion legislation in the country, and pro-pro-life legislation. It's also the most conservative, and so I'm very pleased with what we have. We're going to continue our legal path. Patricia, this is another sign that Republicans, you know, as as, as much as their this session could be dominated by culture wars about guns and abortion and, and other issues, um, this is a sign that Governor Kemp does not want the abortion issue to to rear its head again, even though, again, there's a lot of Republicans, uh, rank and file Republicans, who do want to have that debate and to pass laws like Texas, modeled after Texas or Mississippi, that are gaining steam in, in, in the legal system. Well, this is another bill that Butch Miller has said he plans on introducing, which would be to have Georgia introduce uh, a law just like Texas Texas's uh, abortion law that has not been addressed or struck down by um, by the Supreme Court. And so uh, Miller has said, well, let's just do that because the Georgia law, which is quite restrictive, it, it just has to be said, that is one of the most conservative 
restrictive abortion bills ever passed. Um, it's practically an entire ban on abortion in Georgia. So to act like because Georgia is not, if the governor's not interested in addressing abortion in this session, it's, it is it is not the case that that's because Georgia does not have some of the most restrictive abortion laws already on the books. Uh, they're held up in court. The U.S. Supreme Court is going to be addressing the Mississippi law, which is very similar to Georgia's six-week ban. So it's another situation that is quite dynamic. I think that's why Kemp doesn't want to get into it, um, because this law is uh, probably going to be affected by that Supreme Court decision. But then also it's a situation that they have already addressed and to readdress it in a way that that creates a conversation that you're not doing enough on abortion is just not accurate. They have already restricted abortion in Georgia almost to the point of it uh, not being legal if, if the uh, Supreme Court upholds a decision like that. Exactly. And, and Patricia, there's one other major issue uh, that Kemp uh, outlined this week. And he went to the largest, one of the largest gun ranges in the Southeast out in Smyrna called Venture Outdoors to unveil this plan. And this was what he calls constitutional carry, uh, what some people call permitless carry, what Democrats call crazy. But essentially, it is a, a measure um, that would allow more Georgians to carry concealed weapons, like in concealed handguns, without a permit. And, and Governor Kemp said, look, it's it's time to end permitting uh, for people who want to carry those weapons. And, and Patricia, this would set up, to me, the most significant gun rights debate in Georgia in at least, since at least 2014. Yeah, it would practically eliminate gun laws in Georgia, to be honest with you, if you don't need to have a permit to carry a weapon. Right now in Georgia, in order to um, qualify for concealed carry, you need to have a background check, you apply for a license, you pay a fee. Um, there are um, a number a number of steps that you go through. Now, conservatives say, why should you have to go through steps to be licensed by the government for a right that is yours, uh, created in uh, the Second Amendment to the Constitution? Democrats have said, well, why don't we do the same thing for voting. That's a right too. But it's uh, it's just a situation that I think um, a number of states do have permitless carry. Um, right now, Georgia already has a reciprocity with a number of states uh, that allow uh, people to have looser gun restrictions um, in some cases. But this is sort of the last kind of the the ultimate mountain for Second Amendment uh, activists uh, who want to see uh, this ultimate elimination of a gun license as sort of the, the final frontier uh, for gun rights activists. And so I will be uh, fascinated to see how far it goes because the governor is very strongly supporting it, pushing it as one of his top pieces of legislation um, coming into this legislative session, not pushing a lot of the other uh, social issue uh, items uh, that some others are pushing. So I think this is going to get an early hearing and probably a favorable hearing from this uh, Republican uh, assembly. And this is one of those debates that a few years ago would have dominated the legislative session, but with so much else going on, it'll be huge, but it, but it might not be the big story. And and what I always like to remind our listeners and readers, there's always a surprise issue. There's always something that comes up that we were barely talking about or not talking about at all at this moment in the session. And then, you know, by March, we'll say, how do we not talk about that? How do we not see this coming? Well, there'll be something like that no matter what, Patricia. 
That's 100% right. Obviously, in 2020, it was COVID. Nobody saw that coming. Um, and then I don't know that we all entirely expected um, the level of um, intensity on the election law debate last time around. And that certainly exploded to be um, the most important issue by far. And so um, it's just really important to understand that there are bills that lawmakers are openly pushing. And then there are um, there are bills that uh, many are prepping behind the scenes um, in a strategic way to advance their interests without sort of advancing them publicly right away. So there's always and, something out there. And in 2019, it was abortion. Uh, in 2019, the session opened with, you know, with, with a Republican push to have a very kind of more moderate abortion legislation called the trigger law, which would have outlawed abortion in Georgia only if Roe v. Wade was overturned. And it morphed into, as you mentioned, one of the strictest abortion regulations in the nation. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. If you missed it earlier this week on the anniversary of the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, please catch up on the AJC's exclusive investigation going inside the effort to overturn Georgia's election in 2020. You can find it at AJC.com backslash 2020 election. You can also catch our podcast with David Wickert and Tia Mitchell. Patricia, we mentioned the legislative session starts Monday, but that's not the only major news coming to Georgia uh, next week. We also have on Tuesday, President Biden is coming to really outline his voting rights push, a push to expand voting rights in Georgia using the heart of the voting rights struggle, not just in the in the civil rights era, but also in many ways right now as, as his backdrop. He is. And he is using Georgia as, um, as you said, uh, as the backdrop for this argument. Uh, the president has brought a roadshow for an issue to Georgia before when he was trying to push the Build Back Better Act and the infrastructure bill. Um, Georgia is a hugely important state to this administration. And uh, it makes sense, um, makes perfect sense to me, obviously, is the home um, of John Lewis and Stacey Abrams and all of the activists who have been pushing voting rights um, here in the state for decades, um, it makes sense that they would bring that roadshow here to have a kind of a nationwide message on voting rights. Um, you have heard from Democrats behind the scenes. I have heard from Democrats behind the scenes. Um, they would rather see a plan in Washington than a message event in Georgia on voting rights. And I'll be interested to see how the event goes off uh, on Tuesday when they bring it here. Yeah, there's been some frustration from Democrats, including an, uh, basically an open letter from uh, a coalition of voting rights groups saying, only come here if you have a plan. 
because with the filibuster in place and with President Biden's unwillingness to to roll back that filibuster, and even if he wanted to, there's there's key Democrats in the U.S. Senate who also don't want to roll back that filibuster, then uh, there's been no new traction on this legislation. Now, we don't know what the president's going to say. We don't know what his message will be, but we know it will be aimed more at Washington than at Georgia. He's just using this Georgia venue as, as a very you know, poignant backdrop. Still, though, um, there are a lot of grumbling from senior Democrats in Georgia who felt like they were left out of the loop, who felt like, um, you know, the Georgia is just sort of a, a stage uh, for this event rather than a, a willing partner. These are the types of conversations that um, uh, parties start to have when they're in the majority, when they have power in the White House, they have the luxury of power, but then you also have this incredible responsibility uh, that comes along with that. Democrats have not had the chance to complain about a Democratic president and their visit here in more than 20 years. So it's I'm not that surprised that uh, every state senator in the state was not asked for permission and advice before the White House came here. And um, listen, when there was even a rumor that Joe Biden might come to Georgia in 2020, everybody jumped on board and they were thrilled um, to have him here. Uh, but, but uh, you know, they all, I think there's a lot of anxiety among Democrats nationally that this may be their last best chance to get a bite at the apple on voting rights and on a lot of issues because um, the House maps do not look good for Democrats in 2022. Uh, there's sort of the historical precedent of the majority party and the party of the White House losing seats. They have a tiny majority right now. And we're hearing from a lot of Democrats, I do nationally, um, who just want to swing for the fences, change the rules, jam the bills, do whatever you have to take to get a win on voting rights. Um, Joe Biden is an institutionalist and is reluctant to make those kinds of changes. Um, other And other Democratic senators have no interest in that either. Um, and those are, it's a small number, but an important number. And so um, I think the White House is saying that they can at least do the messaging right now in an effort to just uh, create a drumbeat to push those other Democratic senators over the line. And as we mentioned, Georgia is not just important symbolically as the home of, of John Lewis, who is the namesake of, the, of, of, the, of one of the Voting Rights Acts um, that Biden is supporting, but also ground zero for what's happening right now, ground zero from a lot of these election lies that are still dominating uh, the, the Republican side of the 2022 contest. And of course, the home of where Republicans passed a sweeping rewrite of election laws in response to, to Joe Biden's victory in 2021 that, in, that adds more obstacles to voting. Uh, on, on Thursday, President Biden made sure to point out Georgia's election backlash in his January 6th speech. Recounts were undertaken in state after state. Georgia, Georgia, counted its results three times with one recount by hand. Phony partisan audits were undertaken long after the election in several states. None changed the results. Patricia, he's just reminding us of what we have been reminding uh, our readers, listeners, uh, what, what bipartisan officials have reminded our readers and listeners uh, and Georgians the last year plus that, that Georgia's election was, was free and fair and that Joe Biden won. It was free and fair. Uh, it was also de decided by about 12,000 votes. And Democrats here in the state are very worried, really seriously concerned. Is 
the um, are the changes in the voting laws that passed in 2021, will that change the electorate that they have to deal with? Will it make it too hard for the Democrats who voted in the last election to vote in the next election? Would it affect 12,000 votes? And, um, you know, there's a scenario where Democrats say they're worried about that, that these last election laws actually would damage if they had the exact same election with the different election laws, would they win the next time around? And that's also what they're worried about. We've we've all got our work cut out for us in the media side, don't we, Patricia? Yes. Well, first we'll establish some facts and then we'll, you know, argue about what it all means. Patricia, President Biden's uh, visit is not the only big, huge, non-legislative session related thing happening next week. I won't even be there for President Biden's visit because I'll be on my way back from Indianapolis. And I think our producer, Jay Black, will be heading back home from the big Georgia national college football championship game as well. Yes, I know you guys have your priorities that do not include me or our podcast next Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> and that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Go dogs. Game time temperature of nine or something like that. In Thank Indiana. God it's a dome in an inside. In a, <laughs> it'll be a close anybody gonna get any? Is anybody going to get any work done on day one of the session since it's uh, also national championship game or day two? No, they're not. No. Actually, Greg, do you have the breaking news on that? We have the breaking news. Uh, as we suspected right after the Orange Bowl victory, um, half the legislature will be trying to figure out a way to get to Indianapolis. And that includes uh, two most powerful Republican legislative leaders. House Speaker David Ralston's going to pretty much bang the gavel in at around 8.30 in the morning and bang the gavel out a few minutes later and hop on a flight for Indy. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's also expected to go to Indianapolis. Butch Miller, the most powerful Republican state senator, is heading up to the national championship game. I'm sure a lot of Democrats, I know a lot of Democratic lawmakers are as well. So it'll be uh, kind of the Gold Dome North <laughs> at the uh, Lucas Oil uh, Stadium on, on, on that Monday. And the rest of us get a snow day back here in Georgia. Yeah, you can sleep in a little bit. But uh, although, Patricia, for you, sleeping in is like sleeping till 4 a.m. So <laughs> you get an extra half hour. And I look forward to it. <laughs> well, uh, before we go, we want to let you know that we have a special episode of the award-winning Breakdown podcast coming out on Sunday. In 2017, Bill Rankin brought you the story of Devanya Inman, who had been locked in prison for two decades for a crime he didn't commit. Now he's a free man. Breakdown will explain what it took to finally overturn Inman's conviction and will bring the reunion with his family. So check for that on Sunday morning. We also have our season finale preview for the Falcons on the Bowtie Chronicles with D. Orlando Ledbetter. Doug Roberson introduces you to Atlanta United's newest midfielder on Southern Fried Soccer, and Access Atlanta takes you to the High Museum for its Picturing the South exhibit. Please make sure you subscribe to The Morning Jolt every day to get our exclusive political tip sheet delivered right to your inbox. Patricia and our producer, Jay Black, Thank you so much for helping with this podcast. And please, to our listeners, rate, review, download, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We love hearing from you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. 
It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,